We've been beginning in the same place the last few weeks where we've been recognizing or acknowledging that Jesus is revealing himself. He has come on the scene and he's revealing himself. He's manifesting his glory, right? He's doing that through performing miracles, through teaching through his actions of of cleansing the temple. And so he's manifesting his glory, and we've been asking, why is he doing that? What's his purpose for this? And the answer is, so that you might see his glory, you might believe in him, and be saved. And we keep coming back to John 20, verse 31. It's one of those verses that just anchors us and helps us to know that we're getting this right. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see Jesus, we believe in Jesus, and we are saved. We continue to see Jesus, we continue to live by faith, and we continue to walk the path of salvation. Right? So we're beginning to understand this, I think as we've said over and over again, but there's something else you need to understand as well. Jesus is also revealing us to us. <laughs> Jesus is also revealing who we are as well. He's not only revealing and manifesting his glory, he's also revealing to us who we are. Now, why does Jesus do this? What's the purpose of him revealing to us who we are? Why might he go about doing that? And the answer is the same reason and the same purpose that he is manifesting himself to us. So that we might be saved. All right? We need to know who we are if we're going to be saved. And we need to know who Jesus is if we're going to be saved. But there is one huge difference between Jesus being revealed and between us being revealed for our condition and who we are. And that is our natures and who we are and the reality of our condition could not be more opposite. There could not be a greater distance between the reality of who Christ is in the reality of our condition. You see, Jesus is revealed as Savior. He is the Savior. And we are revealed as the ones needing to be saved. We need a Savior. So the Bible's revelation of Jesus is going to be in contrast to his revelation of who we are. And This is so important whenever we're reading the Bible, if we're wondering, am I understanding this? Am I getting this right? Understanding those two truths are going to be basically the filter through which you can understand if you're getting the passage right. 
Is this showing me that Jesus is who I need? That he's my savior? Is this showing me that I need to be saved? That I'm not right? That there's something wrong with me? Then we can understand I am starting to get this. And one of the reasons why it's so important to understand what the Bible reveals about Jesus and ourselves is because we naturally get them both wrong. <laughs> we naturally think Jesus is not that great. We, we do not think Jesus is that great naturally. We would just assume ignore him. We naturally think we are better than we really are. We don't understand the corruption and the depravity of our hearts. And that reality on both ends is shockingly different than we would think they are. And the result is that we end up outside of the kingdom of God. This is not insignificant matters. This is incredibly significant matters that we get this right. So today you need to see the truth of your condition if you're to look to Jesus and be saved. Verse 3 sets the stage for Jesus to reveal something about our condition. In verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now this really simply means that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover time, that Jesus was doing in a number of miracles, we're not told how many, an unspecified amount of miracles that were going on at the same time. And that these signs are not recorded in Scripture, right? And, and this is actually conf confirmed for us in John 20, verse 30. Listen to these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, right? And so Jesus did many other signs that were not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we hear once again there confirmed that Jesus did many other miracles, but the ones that were written were written so that we might believe. So what was the result of these miracles that Jesus was doing that are not written for us? Well, the result is that many believed in his name. So they, they saw these miracles, they saw what Jesus is doing, and they believed in his name. And a key word here that you should pick up on, we've already heard it before, and we're going to hear it again over and over again, is the word believed in his name. You know, John likes to use certain words over and over again. And they're supposed to bring to our minds uh, what we've heard of that word before. And if you remember, chapter 1, verse 12, we read this, all, that all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is how you become children of God. And so when you hear this word, we should be thinking, this is great. This is exciting. Good things are happening. There's momentum for the kingdom of God here. Yes. His miracles appear to be doing the trick. The small movement is growing upwards. And we're left to our imaginations, aren't we, on the size of the movement. We're not told how many people were, were, were gathered together, how many people were, were, they were, Jesus was gaining in this big movement. But we have evidence that it's growing. 
just what the doctor ordered, right? Imagine how encouraging this would have been to the disciples when they saw this. Imagine how encouraging it would have been to those who were gathered with Jesus. Um, you know, a crowd kind of encourages <laughs> you, doesn't it? And, and what else would you think, right? We go by appearance. We go by what we see. And when people are believing, we get excited, right? That should encourage us when we see that. But Jesus gives a surprising response to the situation. His response is different than we ever would have imagined that Jesus would give. In verse 24, the first part. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Oh, well, that kind of sucks the joy out of the air, doesn't it? <laughs> to understand what is being said here, it is helpful to understand the usage of the, of the language believe. The word believe is used twice here. It's used first that the people believed in his name, but that same word is used for Jesus not entrusting himself to them. And so in other words, you could translate it like this. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs, but Jesus, on the other hand, did not believe in them. <laughs> or you might say, Jesus did not believe in their faith. Many believed in him, but Jesus did not believe in their faith. He did not believe in their supposed belief that it was real. You see, Jesus didn't get super excited. Jesus didn't get super encouraged by the response to his miracles because he knew what was really going on. So what kind of faith is it that Jesus does not believe in? What kind of faith does Jesus not trust in? Well, he doesn't entrust himself to a faith based solely on miracles he performs. They saw the signs, but they had wrong ideas of where the signs were pointing. <laughs> they didn't understand what the signs meant. It, it, you, might, you might kind of describe it as faith at first sight, Right? An infatuation. Unreal expectations. You know what I mean? Have you ever had that before? Where you were just infatuated and you had all these expectations that were not really built on reality. I'm going to change this. Sorry. It's really bothering me. There we go. It's like floating all over the place. It's weird. Many of us go through this same type of faith right at the beginning. When we begin to see who Jesus is, we have this kind of infatuation. And it's okay to be here at the beginning, isn't it? But it's not okay to remain here. This is a shallow-minded faith that doesn't meet with Jesus' approval, and it cannot save. It is the difference between wonderment as someone put it, and contentment. I mean, I mean commitment. <laughs> it's the difference between being wonderment, being overthrown with excitement, that's kind of surfacy, and commitment of a disciple because we recognize who Jesus is and what he has come to do. 
Miracles were not intended to be ends in themselves, but signs pointing elsewhere. They were supposed to point us to the truth of who Jesus is. It is Jesus who saves. And they're supposed to point us towards him, understanding who he is and what he's come to do. I fear that there are many people today who have had some miraculous experience in their life that they have witnessed or been a part of And so they are depending on that as the basis for why God is going to save them. God must be for me because I experienced this or that, or witnessed this or that. Now, I'm not going to go and doubt people's experiences, unless it's contrary to God's word. I think that would be very fruitless to go and argue with anybody against their experiences. Maybe it really did happen. But I do know that experiences, miraculous or common, is never grounds for assuming I am saved. We should never base our salvation on any kind of miracles that we experience or are part of or around us. And I know that's not really the point here, but that's a common reality that we see around us. I've experienced it, where people say, I experienced this crazy thing when I was young. And it's almost as if they're trusting in that as the basis for why God is good with them, why they're in a good place with God. We will immediately see an illustration of this type of faith with Nicodemus. In the next chapter, chapter 3 of John, there's this transition, verse 23 through 25 in chapter 2, and then it brings us right into Nicodemus. But if you remember in chapter 3, verse 2, what Nicodemus says is that you are clearly a man of God, for no one can do the miracles that you are doing unless God is with him, right? And so he too has a similar type of faith that Jesus is not entrusting himself to, right? And I think we're supposed to see him as an example of this. And the interaction (laughs) with Jesus will show us how shallow of a faith Nicodemus has. He is truly in the darkness, isn't he? And you can see the quality of such faith based merely on the miracles and the infatuation with Jesus. Later in the Gospel of John, when many turn away because what Jesus was saying was hard for them to accept. In John 6, verse 66. See, Jesus started saying some really hard things. Things that required commitment. And the disciples that were following him, except for the few that remained with him, (laughs) said, this is too hard for us. They loved the food. They loved the miraculous food that Jesus gave them. They loved the healing of the people who 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 were crippled and needed help. But when Jesus required submission and discipleship and following him, When he said, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh, they said, I don't want any part of that. It's more than I want. And we must understand that true, genuine, saving faith is enduring faith. This is what Jesus taught in the parable of the sowers. There's only one who bore fruit, right? Some of them turned away because the riches of this world looked better. 
Some of them turned away because of persecution. But the genuine believer was the one who endured and bore fruit. And we should all be aware that there is such a thing as a faith that does not save. In James 2 verse 14, we are told about this faith. A type of faith that demons have. And by the way, demons know more than we will ever know <laughs> in this lifetime. They have more information and they don't disagree that it is true, but they hate it. And they do not love the truth. That's the difference, by the way, between saving faith and damning faith. Saving faith loves the truth of Jesus. It glories in the truth of Jesus. It is thankful for who Jesus is. And it follows after Jesus. What do you think would have happened if Jesus entrusted himself to them? <laughs> well, they would have made him king right then and there. They would have told him, you've got to bypass the cross. right? And that's what they tried to do, actually. You've got to go around the cross. Don't go towards the cross. That's ridiculous. And Jesus says such thinking is what? Of the devil. That is devilish thinking. Jesus says, my purpose is to go to the cross. I must die, for that is the only way to bring salvation and to glorify the Father. So why does Jesus respond this way? Why does he not commit himself to them? We are told the reason he responds this way in verse 24, the second half through verse 25. It says, He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus responded this way because he knew exactly what was going inside of those people. He knows the insides and the outsides of people. He sees right through them. The fact that Jesus knew what was going on inside of people reveals something about Jesus to us, doesn't it? It reveals that Jesus can do what only God can do. Only God can see inside the hearts of men and women. 1 Kings 8 verse 39 tells us, that God alone knows the hearts of all men. Acts 15, verse 8 tells us God knows the heart. Romans 8, verse 28 says God searches hearts. Jeremiah 17, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Only God can see inside the hearts of men. And this tells us that Jesus shared what only God has. He was omniscient, just like God is omniscient. We, on the other hand, are very different from Jesus in this respect, aren't we? We can only see what's going on outside of people, right? We can only see how they act and what they say, what we observe, and make discernment based on that. Make assumptions and conclusions. We look at someone who might appear to be trustworthy on the outside, but that very person could rob us and steal from us and show us that they aren't trustworthy the next moment. And we say, well, I thought that person was trustworthy. I thought I knew them. Because we don't know, and we can't see as Jesus does. You know, sometimes we think we have this special ability of discernment, don't we? That we can tell what's really going on inside of people. We claim to have this ability. Perhaps it's because of our experience. Perhaps we say it's some kind of special gift that God has given to us. I think it's important that we understand that the only special insight we have is God's word. It tells us what people are like. And his word is better than any experience. 
And we all can have it. Now, yes, it is possible based on God's word to be slightly more perceptive, I guess. But we have to be careful in our confidence and our abilities to discern what's going on within people because we don't even know ourselves that well. I think we need to be humbled. And we need to trust God's word and trust that God is the only one that knows people's motives. Whenever I think I really know what's going on within people, watch out. <laughs> watch out. We see here that Jesus was not limited to outward appearance like we are. He didn't need a witness to tell him what was going on. This means, unlike any of us, Jesus cannot be tricked or duped by flattery. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. This means Jesus cannot be tricked. Jesus cannot be enticed by our false praise. You can't hide anything from Jesus, can you? And Jesus' encounters with Nicodemus and with the Samaritan will show us how Jesus sees right through people. He has this amazing way. We can't do this, by the way. <laughs> we don't have the ability Jesus had. He was able to see exactly what was going on in each one of their hearts. And he exposes them for who they really are. Every day, one, every one of us will give account to Jesus who knows everything. You and I will stand before this very Jesus and give account of ourselves. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, are you ready to stand before God and give account? He will see everything. He will see right through us. And the Bible calls us to be ready. So if God knows your condition perfectly, and you don't understand it very well on your own, wouldn't you want to understand what God says about your condition? And the question is, where would you go to find out what God says about your condition? And the answer is obvious, but I want to state the obvious for us. The answer is God's word, right? And here it is right in front of us. Isn't that amazing? The greatest insight into the human heart is revealed before us from the beginning to the end. It unveils the human condition like nowhere else. It's right in front of us. It's the only authoritative source for knowing the truth of the condition of man. Stop listening to other sources. Stop depending on your opinions. Even the experts, they don't know anything. Just stop it. <laughs> Look at God's word, the authoritative statement on the condition of man. If you looked, you would find God's word does not just address the subject of your condition, but it has a lot to say about it. And it is so frustrating how man constantly messes everything up. Just like you and me, right? God's word does not sugarcoat the reality. It is always revealing the reality that man needs salvation. That he is the answer he is everything you need, and man, are you messed up. You are not right. And the problem is we want to find something that is going to make us feel better about ourselves, 
So we're not willing to really hear what God's word says. Sometimes we can read the Bible and think, well, oh, I think it means something else, you know. Because <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like what it has to say. Donald Gray Barnhouse comments, men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls. And multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. So what does God's word reveal about the condition of man? Romans 3, verse 10 through 18 is a great summary of the condition of man. Listen to this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These verses are just a compilation of Old Testament quotes. And they show that every part of us is cancerous. Every part of us is corrupt. We are totally corrupt in that sense. This is the result of the fall in Genesis 3. That every part of our nature, our emotion, our will, our thoughts, our actions, are contaminated by sinful motives and sinful desires. Isaiah 1 verse 6 says this as well. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness. From the sole of the foot to the head there is no soundness. Romans 8 verse 7 through 8 expresses what this means. And think about the implications of this, the profound implications of what this means. Because ultimately what matters is what this means in relationship to God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This means no matter what you do, you cannot please God on your own. You stand in hostility with God. You are an enemy of God. And not only that, Ephesians 2 verse 1 says you are dead in your sins. Dead in your sins. Oh, you're alive to sin, but you're dead to God. <laughs> and you are dead in your sins. If you were to look to see the reality of the wicked condition of the human heart displayed before us, clearest in the world, where would you go? Where would you look for? Where would you see it? And we often think, oh, we would look to some terrible leader who committed genocide. You look for some terrible calamities that happen throughout this world, and, but that's not really where you go to see the wickedness of the human heart. If you were to look to see the reality of the wickedness of the human heart the clearest, you would look to see how we responded to our Creator and to our God. God created a good world. He created the world well. <laughs> he put us in this glorious world filled with all kinds of good things. He is a good ruler who gave us good rules. What therefore is the right response to our good creator? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The right response that we owe to God is honor, obedience, submission, praise, thanksgiving, faith, 
Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's the right response. That means we love Jesus. That's just the right response. Paul summarizes our great failure to respond right in Romans 1, verse 21. Listen to these words. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Our great evil, the greatest evil, is our failure to honor God as God and give thanks to him. Is that unbelievable? Our great failure, the, the greatest wickedness in the world is failure to give thanks to God. That exposes the wickedness of the human heart. We instead became supremely selfish, and we complain a lot. This great evil is verified everywhere we go. Everywhere we go, where do we see? Do we see people thanking God at your workplace? Do you see people thanking God when you, when you walk across the street in our families? Well, seldom, unless God is doing a work in someone's heart. In the clearest place, you see the wickedness of man is on the cross. What did Jesus do? Jesus did great things, great miracles. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. He did amazing things. He, he multiplied food for people. He just, it was incredible. There's never been anyone like him before. And what was the response? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. That's what we do. They complained against him. They hated him. And they crucified him. Just a quick example. I, I recently was witnessing to somebody. Um, and this person was listening. It was crazy. And uh, so I began by saying how messed up the world is, you know, and you have to be crazy to not agree with that, right? But I wanted to get more personal with them and expose the problem. So I asked him, what is the greatest wickedness in the world? What is the greatest wickedness? And I told him, I said, the greatest wickedness is failure to give thanks to God. I said, we can go days and days without thanking God. That's incredibly, awfully wicked, The way we speak often betrays our failure to understand our condition. We say, well, just trust your heart. Right? What a crazy thing to say. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? There's hardly anything more dangerous than that. Now, clearly, when God begins to sanctify us and to change us, uh, there is an aspect of that where we can say, like, delight yourself in the Lord. and He'll give you the desires of your heart, you know, and pursue that. So there, there's an aspect of that. I get it. But we always have to be weary of our hearts. Always. What compounds the problem is our unwillingness to acknowledge the truth of our condition when it is right in front of, front of us. We'd la rather remain in the darkness than to acknowledge the truth. So what is the answer? How do you come to acknowledge what God's word says about your condition as being true? You must encounter God through his word. Isaiah is an example of this in Isaiah 6 verse 5. Remember he saw the glory of God and he said this. When he saw the glory of God, high and exalted, when he saw the reality of the manifestation of God's glory, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what does God do? He cleanses him. He purifies him. We can only encounter God 
and see our sinfulness, as Isaiah did, through the Spirit revealing Christ to us. Did you know we can have the same experience that Isaiah had? When we see the glory of God manifested in Jesus Christ, and when we do, we will see the wickedness of our hearts, and we will repent and turn to Christ and believe in him. God reveals his glory to us through Jesus by his spirit. And that's what we're seeing, aren't we, in John? We're seeing Jesus manifesting and revealing himself to us. And that's what we need to see. And only in light of him can we see the reality of our need for him. Only in light of him can we see the wickedness, kind of like a light shining in your darkness of your life and exposing what you did not want to see and what you did not want to understand. And it crushes us, and it will crush us, but that's exactly where we need to be before we look up and find ultimate healing and we find salvation in Jesus. And the only way we will ever look to him is if we see the reality of our condition. We will never look to him if we don't see that. So why is it so important that you see your condition accurately? Because you will never rely on his grace and be saved until you see your condition. It turns our hearts towards him. And I'll go quickly here. Why is it so important that you see your condition accurately? Because you can only worship God to the degree you see your condition accurately. Worship cannot flow from someone who thinks they're better than they are. <laughs> Even when we look at Jesus, we will never see him as being glorious when we think that we're pretty much okay. We must constantly be recognizing that we are not okay. When we realize the reality of our condition, worship will flow when we see Jesus. Worship will just flow out of us. How can Jesus love me? How can Jesus have done this to me? Jesus justifies sinners, and he is glorified by justifying sinners. And that's where praise flows out of, and that's where he is glorified from. The greater we see our condition in light of God's grace and his glory, the louder and clearer the praise from our worship will be to him. Conversely, the better we think of ourselves, the less we will care about God. To be a worshiping church, we must continually speak the truth of our condition, never grow tired of it. And we must continually see the greatness of our Savior. That is our purpose. So why is it important for you to see your condition accurately? Because you can only witness faithfully to the degree you see your condition accurately. John 3 verse 18 gives us the truth of our condition plainly. Jesus said this. Jesus said that you are, those who do not believe are condemned already. Listen to Jesus who spoke the truth of the condition of man in John 8 verse 44. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. You might say, but people won't like me, right? Well, if that is the case, because you lovingly spoke the truth, if you lovingly spoke the truth, the people don't like you, then you can say you have the privilege of following in Jesus' footsteps. Listen to John 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. So if you want to attract crowds, make friends, you can speak positive things and tell them this, God has great plans for you, and leave it there, but it will do them no good, 
It will only help consign them to hell, and you will be found to be a deceiver. No matter how nicely you try to speak about someone the truth, the truth is that unless they are born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. John 10, verse 33. So we must commit ourselves to speaking the truth of Christ. So this is my question I will leave you with. Do you have a right and accurate view of your condition? You need to have a right and accurate view of your condition if you are to see the glory of Jesus Christ accurately and if you are to be saved and worship him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word, God. Oh God, it exposes our hearts. And Lord, what we see sometimes is not really pretty. But God, I thank you that you have turned our hearts this morning away from ourselves. That you've turned our hearts to the only place where they can look. The only place where salvation is found. And that is in Jesus Christ and his precious blood that was spilled out for us. Lord, I thank you that you bore the weight of God's wrath on my behalf so that I might bear the righteousness of Christ. And I thank you that you are making us into your image. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace that saves wretches like us. And Lord, I pray that our response would be worship, that our response would be joy, that our response would be praise. And Lord, if there is anyone out here who does not know you, Lord, I pray that worship would arise in their hearts as they repent of their sins and as they turn to you and that they find you to be a sufficient Savior. And Lord, we look forward to your return when you come back and bring us into your kingdom. Lord, we do look forward to that day. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.